Thank you for listening to Recyclables. I really appreciate it. If you want to support the program, the best way to do that is to like, subscribe, and share. Uh, the next best way is to make a donation either through the Acast app or at our Patreon, which is just patreon forward slash recyclables.com. Until next time, thank you. Hey gang, PTP in the editing in my bedroom. That's, that's where I'm at. Uh, I finished editing this, and I just wanted to say thank you for still listening to our show. Uh, since Rochelle and I caught COVID at different times, it's really messed with our production schedule, and I appreciate you tuning in. Uh, I also want to apologize in advance for the poor quality of the audio on my end. Every time we think we have the remote technology figured out, we uh, encounter a new bug. But thank you for bearing with us as we get this. I hope you enjoy this episode. Live long and prosper. Or may the force be with you. Or or whatever they say in Battlestar Galactica. I I I don't wanna I don't wanna discredit anybody's religion. Enjoy the show. I wish I had something jackassy to yell. Like I should just be like Recyclables! Oh my, <laughs> my god. <laughs> don't worry about it, Pat. Yeah, let's just start recyclables. Let's just start the show. Oh, yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you have some things to come clean about. I do. This is uh, this episode is called "Lies, Falsehoods, Outright Omissions," and should I forgot the Patrick Thomas Perkins story? The, the Patrick Thomas Perkins. <laughs> well, uh, let's let's introduce ourselves real quick. I am the host, Patrick Thomas Perkins. This I'm is- Rochelle Cody. That's why I said the Patrick Thomas oh, Perkins oh, 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 story you- as I was introducing you. Oh. I'm sorry I'm so fucking smooth. No, you were... I'm sorry I'm so fucking dense that I didn't introduce you Frenchly. Like, I'm going to cut that. I, 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 <laughs> uh, well, here's the deal. We, we are obviously inspired by a lot of podcasts. I think the recyclables portion of our broadcasting is like kind of clearly inspired by shows like Behind the Bastard and uh, Dollop. Uh, but there's also another one that we are inspired by called Extra Credits. It's a uh, YouTube series that just captures little episodes from history and presents them in a fun narrative that's pretty accessible to all ages. And one of the things that I really appreciate that they do is at the end of their runs, they'll do an episode called Lies, where they're like, um... We mix some things up. We have animators and writers, and the animators mistook what the writers said, or this wasn't the historian's particular area of specialty, so they mixed up a flag, or we skipped this part because it wasn't important to the narrative, but it was going on, so we wanted to tell you about it. Uh, I want to have this this show be as interactive as possible, even though it's just me talking into a microphone. We're talking about my mistakes. And did you know this is technically like the 10th episode of Recyclables? This is That's bananas. Uh, yeah, yeah. So so we've had a few episodes. And basically, I broke down each episode with kind of three three questions. What did I get most inaccurate? I, I have a lot of subtext to the episodes where I try to sneak them in there. So I wanted to say the quiet part out loud about each episode also. And then, um, if there was if there was anything I was hoping people might particularly take away, any extra credit that we can do, um, I also applied that to each episode. Overall, uh, in, in the series, the thing I get most most inaccurate is exact details. I'm, re- <laughs> I'm really bad at like precise dates or exact locations or like because. 
because that's not how I remember things personally. So unless it's in my notes the exact time and day, I don't always know the exact time or day, uh, which which has been, I, I have been told, isn't always a thing people like, so I'm working on it. Who's roasting you? Uh, uh, you don't need to know. Oh, I need to know. I'll occasionally get like a private message. I'll be like, what day was this? Or, or <laughs> nothing. Like, it's just like my stepsisters and like a friend on Facebook. So it's nobody, nobody major. I do also have a habit of all, I'll omit something for narrative, like just cause, uh, like the biggest one will be during Diocletian. I don't talk about a bunch of plagues. It didn't fit into the story. Uh, and other reasons. And okay. there's also there's also the thing where I'll find things out after the fact. Like I can I can read a piece of information a bunch, but I'll find new things out afterwards, and then I'll be really excited to share them, and I'll be a little disappointed that I didn't get to them by the time we did the episode. So I tried to include those in here. Um, what you're saying is history is like Arrested Development. On each rewatch, you find another inside joke or like running joke that they had in every episode. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's very true. Like I'll. I'll find a new through line to things all the time. Like it's, I'll be like, oh, that's how policing works. Cool. Um, wah, wah. The the quiet part that I've been trying to say out loud through kind of all of these episodes is that education is revolutionary. <laughs> Knowledge is power. I know GI Joe said it. I know it sounds cliche, but I really do think it's it's the one of the strongest tools you can have in your arsenal because repeatedly, the more people know universally the more they're kind of willing to build community and work together and that's and how revolution i just want to add from my personal opinion how revolutionary the education is is based on how accessible it is and what it's trying to educate you to do and accomplish and be i'm very i'm very influenced uh, I, I think i think i've said it repeatedly by a book called pedagogy of the oppressed and it's just about how how to educate people about how they are oppressed and how they can deal with it. I know it's obnoxious to say that repeatedly out loud, so I try not to say it all the time. And I also know I'm limited in my own ability and information. That's why we try to bring on other people, and we've got plans to bring on more people. Uh, oh, we got plans, we, baby. We got plans. Once COVID stops getting in our way. Yeah, once we stop getting sick one after the other. <laughs> The extra credit kind of from all the episodes is that I want people to know that, like, the things that have happened in history are possible. Like, the good stuff is possible, the bad stuff is possible, too. But, like, the cool things that happen, we, we're kind of doing the Stuart Holbrook thing through our show by trying to, like, point out stuff that's different or weird or cool from history or different ideas and get people to realign their thinking. Pat! Does this mean I need to start selling paintings made by someone else? Uh, does this mean I need to start drinking like pints of liquor a day? Okay, yeah, you can take the liquor part. I'll take. I'll just start making different art and claim that it's from uh, Etoc Elacor, which is my name backwards. Ooh, so. I like. That. Is anyone gonna figure it out? You know, I, I don't know that they would. Because you've sent me links to that in your YouTube a bunch of times, and I never put it together until now. Yeah, no one, no one does. Uh, I I created that in like middle school though. That that has etoc has been my username for so many things for so long. Oh man, that's good. So if you ever want to find me and harass me in other social medias, that's a good place to start.
And, and speaking of social media, that's the extra credit I would like people to do is to, to talk about the show, share the show. If you if you find something insightful from the show, tell other people about it. You can go to the Patreon. That would be cool. But like the the main thing is just get the word out about the show because the more people that listen, eventually Rochelle and I will get sponsors and then we'll never worry about bus fare again. Well, and I would say not only tell other people about it, but definitely engage with either of us if you have specific questions or things that you think we might be interested in yeah yeah if you have a story i've already got at least uh one book i'm about to look into eventually i'm I'm reading like three books at once so once i'm done with those three books at once i'm gonna look into one that we had a fan suggest about the relationship between capitalism and uh the witch hunts the witch trials like i'm very curious to see if that pans out to anything and we've had a few other uh one of the one of the th- the inspirations for this episode was a friend of mine who does puppetry reached out and was like, hey, you forgot about this whole thing in your comedy episode. And I was like, oh, shit, I did. Thank you. So so feel free to... It would be someone who's into puppets who'd prove you wrong. <laughs> she's wonderful. She she does clown work. She She's... Oh! Yeah, she's... Got- uh, uh, clown malarkey? Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's hella rad. I follow her. She's nice. Yeah. We're going to do an episode by episode. I'm going to try not to take too long. Uh, with cost of convenience, uh, what I got inaccurate the most was, of course, I mixed up dates, uh, especially in the first two episodes, the history of shopping and the history of early convenience. Um, I was a little, I didn't care nearly as much about that story, I'll admit. So I might have gotten, I think I got the years mixed up on when Seven Eleven switched to 24 hours. I just wish you cared. I, I, I wish I did. Well, the, the thing was, I'd spent so much time. Like, I, I read hundreds of organic I know. Well, well the, the, the listeners might not know, so I think it's worth letting them Oh, know. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, just that I read, like, hundreds of Oregonian articles about Plaid Pantry because I was in the middle of the boycott, and I just wanted to know the history of the company. Once I had that narrative, I was like, oh, I want to give it a bigger framework, so I researched this other stuff when you and I decided to have a podcast. So, so the order of information is right, like, the timeline is correct. But I might have like gotten a year ahead or behind itself. A thing, a thing I didn't realize until after the fact, but I should have looked more into, especially with cost of convenience, was Tom McCall uh, had a really huge part to play in the bottle bill, way more than Pancinetti himself did. Pancinetti just found a way to make it work, but it was really Tom McCall's baby, and that's why Tom McCall like in the gives uh, Pancinetti. Uh, position in a few political councils in the future i think as he's like thanks for kind of making my vision of oregon come true and tom mccall's totally worth an episode of his own i i didn't realize just how huge his impact was until after the fact i feel like you we talked about doing an episode about him because isn't he the one they like renamed a building that was named after him recently yeah, and he's 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 really impactful on Oregon's history, especially post fifties and sixties. He influenced uh, the way we kind of whitewashed and liberalized things, like that whole movement to be environmental over white supremacist, mm. or, or to kind of oh, make that our claim to fame. Do you know what it sounds like? What it sounds like? Diet culture rebranding itself as health and wellness culture. Yeah. <laughs> anytime it's awful you know just give it time they'll find a way to make it sound delightful it's great 
the the other thing I think that I I omitted because I didn't have access to a resource for it. I don't really know what went on with the '90s in the company, uh, or or nor the early 2000s, because not a lot of that stuff was reported on. Uh, the Multnomah County Library, thank you, Matthew Paul Teddy, had the Oregonians kind of archives online, but they only go up to 1989 which was when Pancianetti died, so it seemed like an appropriate end to our episode. But that also means I don't know what happened with Plant Pantry after that. Like, you have to go to the Oregonians website, and I didn't want to pay for for all the features, so I didn't. Um, just just going to straight up admit that. There's uh, a paywall, folks. That's why we need more Patreons. Yep. I also kind of glossed over what the boycott I was involved with did. One of the things I glossed over was, oh, we got PPE, but we got we wanted PPE and extra pay, and we wanted pay time off for the people who couldn't come in. We wanted a whole bunch of things, and ultimately we got the PPE, and that was it. There was like a one month bonus, and I didn't I didn't want to make it about me or against Plaid specifically with cost of convenience, uh, so I didn't want to go into this part where I'm like, nah, here's how they are now even though we did touch on it a little bit. Mm-hmm. And I think the thing I didn't get very... The the thing I wish I had been clearer about was just how much work Janine Meyer did in starting the Plaid Pantry Union because she's 26, she has a job already, and she doesn't work at Plaid. She's in her own union, and it's like, oh, these people also need it, and does her best to help them unionize from the outside. And she does it without social media and without cell phones. And I know that makes me sound uh, like a millennial to be like, she did it without technology. But she did it with the tools available at the time, which were not necessarily, you know, designed to... There was no Discord, right? Like, like if the plan employees wanted to right now, they could start a Discord about conditions and start talking about what they wanted to do. Janine Meyer didn't have that. She did all of this either by bus by car by bike i don't know because there's like two and a half stories about her i bet you she went on a razor scooter they weren't around then but but she might okay but that's my dream she might have done like that marty mcfly scooter like from back to the future where it's like a skateboard with a pogo stick in it (laughs) so we can picture janine meyer going through portland oregon And it sounds like the Jetsons. Yes. (laughs) But that's that's just a lot of legwork for a person who wasn't an employee who just saw the conditions and wanted to help. And I think that's... I want to over and over again sing the praises of Janine Meyer, which was... Kind of leads us to the quiet part uh, that I I didn't really say out loud is these people need help and they're not going to be able to do it for themselves a lot of the time. Like, they work too much by, by design. And a lot of the time, part of that design is also, I can't tell you how many people have been like, yeah, I'm committed to this. Actually, you know what? Screw it. It's a lot easier to just walk away. Like, screw it. Things aren't going to change unless people get involved. And I didn't want to just, like, harp on that over and over again. Yeah. And I, uh, I, I am also pretty adamant about this thing that customers are both getting stolen from and co-signing to the conditions of the theft when they shop there without questioning what's going on or without engaging in it critically because like the markups that increase your price and the the labor that's being stolen from the employees that are there for your convenience those are both being taken from you 
but you're also agreeing to it when you show up at this business. And I know there's like no ethical consumption under capitalism or whatever, but I think at the very least you can be critical about what you're eating. That's this was the quiet part to say out loud, I guess. I go to Seven Eleven entirely too much, and I definitely there are ways I can avoid that by like stocking up at the grocery store when I'm able to go out in public again. But it's like you got to figure out what's within your ability and what's reasonable based on the limitations you have. And I think it's better for us to hold ourselves accountable for doing better things than getting mad at other people for doing the wrong thing. Yeah, it's here's the deal. I go to my corner plan all the time. And most of that is is low key to rabble rouse to be like, what do you guys think about your conditions? What do you guys how can I help? Right. Like there's some of that. But it's also like I I engage in it critically and I don't blame them. Like like the thing I, I would love to change if I couldn't help them, like, get outside people to help them organize or something, is to get customers to not stand in line and blame the clerk for the fact that there's a line. Like, it's not the clerk's fault that there's a line at whatever store you're at. It's the fact that that store didn't want to hire enough people to handle the fact that there would be a line because it would cost them money. And if you can just engage even that little bit of critically with the idea of, of consumerism, I think you'll, you'll really it'll be a good first step towards helping the people stuck in those conditions. I mean, I can't imagine getting mad at anyone in a customer service position for like there being a line. Like I, I cannot fathom doing that mainly because I've been the person working that really long line at multiple jobs. So I just can't even imagine getting mad at something I know is not within their control. A lot of the, pe- the people most likely to get frustrated are the people who have never had to be in the position where you have a line of seven people and you're trying to go as fast as you can and then somebody's like, okay, I need exact change and I need it all in pennies or whatever weirdness you have to deal with. I guess the only way to help these people is to, if you can't do anything, like share the story, engage in it critically. Share the story, be empathetic. Extra, I don't, I don't know where to classify this bit, if it's extra credit or, or something we need to recognize, but these strikes cost companies a fortune. Even if they don't succeed. And that was kind of my other hidden message. But it's also something to remember with all of these other strikes that are going on currently. Is these things are going to happen eventually one way or another. And the more companies fight it, the more it costs them. And like, so there's this part of me that's always like, maybe the owners will listen and will realize that. Yeah. And I think I think the real extra credit though to take away from it, th- there's two things. One convenience stores aren't the only people in this kind of position of being put on skeleton crews not getting paid enough being overworked and underpaid uh it's in a lot of other industries it's in bartending it's in the food service food service it's in hospitality services in general yeah so it's it's all over the place and i think you nailed it really when i was listening to it again in that we're being charged for them owning the cost of like the, the means of convenience. And yeah. I don't know where to add that to Marx or whoever, but I think it's important to note that these people are basically grifting us uh, to give us access to something that's, that's there anyhow. Okay. Yeah. It shouldn't be hard for there to be a corner store. Like that's not a difficult thing. And that's like obviously a way to make money. But when you see these chains and these big companies doing it and it's taking from the community without giving back, 
what they're doing is they're taking advantage of what was already going to be a good place and pulling it more out of it than they're giving back to it. Does that make sense? Yeah, and that's kind of that was. I, I think you you nailed it on the head with that because thank you. Yeah, because I think that's very much that's what that's why this can't just be me ranting at a wall like it's yeah. Be. <laughs> well, and it makes me think of our episode where we talked about neoliberalism and apping apps and the gig economy because that's a huge part of it. Is like there has been food delivery before food delivery services like Uber Eats and shit. Like, that's a given. But they have cornered the market and edged out any other sort of industry in a way that makes it hard for businesses to deliver their own food and compete with their prices. It's weird because it's like they own the means of one group of people owns the means of production. And so another group of people is like, well, what if we own the means of convenience to that production? All right, cool. Like, we'll just edge right. it out. Uh, that brings us to episode two, if you're ready. Uh, which um, was- am I ready? Oh, are you ready? Am I ready? Okay, so episode two, Diocletian did it. The thing I am most guilty of is fast-forwarding through a lot of history and dropping names like I assumed everyone knew them. Oh, and there were a lot of ones you were dropping. I was like, yeah, that sounds like a, that sounds like a Roman thing. And I could tell after the fact that I was like, oh, man, I should have. <laughs> I, I just... I just- the, the the thing is, I just fixated on this for like two years and was super curious about various stuff. One, one thing I should have been clearer on, we can't be clear that everything was all Diocletian. That's a good point. There was some stuff that, w- that might have been started under the two guys before him that just finished under his reign. And he's like, Diocletian did it. Mm. And there might have been stuff that he st- he didn't start, that somebody else started, but it gets finished during... A different reign and because you want the prestige of it being like you want the prestige of diocletian the uniter you say oh this is diocletian's so there's a lot of instances of stuff like that happening so we can't um we can't be a hundred percent how rad would that be though that like people name drop you to get uh like points because like i i can't imagine everyone's like i don't know if you know this but i'm friends with rochelle yeah and uh (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's like it's like it's like when you at somebody that's like not quite your friend but is sort of your friend um like like <laughs> and they're like why did you tag me because i knew you had the followers i knew <laughs> <laughs> a lot of dick writing in the past for sure <laughs> um, one thing one thing i also did was we, we talked about this a minute ago but um i was already laying pretty heavy the comparisons between America and Rome kind of on purpose. And that was another reason I skipped over the plague stuff was I didn't, I felt like I was already kind of describing the state of America with Diocletian, that he's kind of the originator of build back better slash make Rome great again. Oh, and God. I, I didn't want to add that there was this plague going on in the background, killing people. Um, and, and part of that was also, we're not sure what kind of plague it was. It could have been smallpox. It could have just been the flu. And, like, the flu was really bad in the year 300 and you died from it. Cause of the or diet. it was an alien from an episode in Doctor Who. And we're in the Doctor Who timeline. Yeah, yeah. We, God bless the doctor. <laughs> But that does mean. Are you Dick Van Dyke? <laughs> <laughs> oh god, that's that's gonna get censored. Anyway, um, 
Um, so that just means when you listen to the Diocletian episodes, know that there's also just plagues going on all the time in the background. Raging plagues. Because part of the problem is when you when you lose infrastructure in your society, um, it's harder. E- even though they didn't really have doctors, like they had like healers and stuff. I, I just rolled my eyes and you can't see it, but they they looked down on doctors. They revered priests and probably some of the practices that priest would have told you which would like they might have exasperated the conditions of a plague all that stuff's neither here nor there and i mean the doctors also could have been doing really off wrong things too yeah that was standard medical practice but also was the exact opposite of what you needed to do in that scenario leeches don't help as much as they thought they did yeah but the important part is is when your society is falling apart you're more susceptible to disease also when you're susceptible to disease your society is more susceptible to falling apart and i felt like i was already laying things on pretty thick well you know what you did a disservice to all of us (laughs) <laughs> you know, you know, like in Ferngully and she puts her hand on the cut off tree and it like burns and hurts her hand really bad. You just did that to us. I'm, I'm sorry, listeners. The, the quiet part I didn't say out loud was that knowing history means we can avoid it. That, that's that's the big thing. So when you see people when you see, oh, there's there's kind of this crazy that's going on and there's people constantly grabbing for power and the, the norms are changing. Well, you have to take an active role then. You can't just be a backseat passenger in history. The The bigger thing, though, is I'm just always fascinated and kind of curious about people who turn down or walk away from power like that. Like, it's always just very... He's the only Roman emperor out of hundreds of them to just be like, no, I'm good, I retire. And, like, some of that was health, and some of it was he really thought he was done, it seems like. And that's just, it's just weird to me. Like, that's curious. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, I don't know. It's just, it's just always very curious to me, especially in olden times. It makes me think of, um, Sam from Lord of the Rings and how, like, he carries the ring for just a little bit, but he doesn't really have a hard time giving it back. It's an interesting story to me, especially given the Roman propensity to, like, they're very patriarchal. They just kind of, they never assume they're wrong. And the idea that someone comes is peak of Romanity. And it's like, I'm gonna go go cabbages instead. It's just, I, it's fascinating. It sounds pretty dope. Yeah, and then uh, and it was also to kind of highlight that government by force is built on extortion, or or our government built on force is built by extortion. I don't know how to frame that properly. That was that was kind of my hidden message. <laughs> how about a government that enforces more than it provides resources is a government built on extortion. That works, yeah. That makes us sound smart. Do what Rochelle said. Like it, because I mean, having governing bodies, I don't think is necessarily a bad thing. But when they have so much power and do so little to help, then that's not real. They're not really doing their job of governing. Yeah, like I, I understand the philosophical idea of the state, and kind of my counter argument to it is. If we are all involved in the state, it stops being the state, and it starts being something else. I, I, I think that's a, a distinction easy to miss in, in our modern times, because we're so used to the idea of the state around us, of government around us being an institution. That yeah. It's, it's hard to conceive of, like, oh, I might have a say in it, which I guess is kind of the hidden extra credit, how does this apply to us, is we don't have to repeat history. We don't have to, like, you know... 
fold authoritarians or military anarchy we can we can do something different knowing stories like diocletian is how we do it let me yeah let me let me think what was i going to add especially with diocletian i mean i think i appreciate your ability to make parts of history interesting that were made very boring by the like schooling that i had on roman history there's certain parts of like just any history that I'll just glaze over because of how poorly it was taught to me in an academic setting. So I'm just like, okay, I could be more interested in learning about this if this is the way it was. I think I think that's a byproduct of the fact that we're we're this is a thing my therapist pointed out to me, and I can't help but see it elsewhere, which is like his approach to therapy has been we're treated like cogs that are supposed to be put in a machine, and and therapy or education or healthcare even are meant to put us back to being cogs in that machine and like his approach to therapy is you don't what if you don't want to be a cog what if you don't want to be in the machine all right how do you deal with that and i i I try to i like trying to apply that philosophy to other things including history and education because i don't think it has to be boring i think it's made boring so that we don't think about it except as like this thing in a machine but it's very vibrant and very real and very interesting Here's a question I have. Um, what does your therapist feel about raging against said machine? <laughs> so we, we still have three minutes left. Oh, no, I think I think that was most of it. I'm ready to, to move to, to Mr. Deddy if you're ready. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I, I Johnny Horton saying I'm ready if you're willing. All right. Deddy, baby. <laughs> Daddy! Matthew Paul Daddy. The the things I got most inaccurate on this episode, I think the biggest thing was I didn't cover the later half of his life. And because of that, I didn't really circle how much he he cared about the he cared about making things better within the white supremacist hierarchy. So <laughs> So like, like he, make it let what? What? Like, like he cared about Asian American rights and he cared about like uh Native American like treatment. Not about rights it seemed like, but definitely about how they were treated. Uh and he didn't care about African Americans at all, like about black people at any point. But he was he was trying to make things better in the white supremacist way. So well the the Asian Asian people were seen as just a step below white people. So he was trying to bring everyone else on board with that. And I just was like, I've already proved that I and will prove that this guy is pretty racist. So I don't want to continue to harp on the point. And it would require kind of going backwards from what I wanted to do, which was tell kind of this intersectional history story. Mm -hmm. He just has a differently flavored racism than I most people would know about yeah like it's more it's a more intricate racism it's, it's, he's like oh it's savory and sweet it's so like you know how you were talking about how you spent a lot of time thinking about your gender so you know where you're at i spent a lot of time thinking about my gender so i'm just more confused about it and it sounds like he's just been he'd just been chiseling away at his white supremacy yeah he like, was just right. thinking about what he was like well you've got to be this specific asian percentage to be yeah yeah um the other thing he I, did the work is he, what i'm saying yeah <laughs> was it the right work no <laughs> but he did a lot of it um, <laughs> um the other thing and this was kind of intentional i didn't really cover the story of portland's uh portland's area and the the portland area indigenous peoples because i want to do that later um mm. and also the way history kind of worked it started there was more historical events further north that impacted Oregon 
So a lot of the tribes I was t- talking about, the the Klinka in particular, and the damn it, I can't remember the other ones. But a lot of those tribes were further north, so in British Columbia, Alaska, mm-hmm. and Washington. And the Modoc War happened south, but it was more important historically, just one of the bloodier ones. Mm-hmm. And then um, the Walata Aymarisha's Black History Timeline was one of the most useful things. And I know I mentioned it in the episode, but I wanted to mention it again. Because I decided to focus on the Black History Timeline, um, I didn't really get to circle back to how Deddy influenced it. But the, the main thing he did was create the Constitution, which was so racist that it excluded black people and it continued to have racist language in it until the early 2000s and it was when was it 18 like 1859 like it's right before the civil war okay and that's that's also an issue that's going on at the time which is like oregon comes out for the union in the civil war but there's a lot of confederate sympathizers and deddy is in this weird position where he's a democrat uh that eventually switches to a republican but he kind of has to pass judgment on cases about people who will like fly confederate flags to try to like literally get people behind the cause so there's this dude in yamhill there's one story in the newspaper i read about this dude in yamhill who keeps raising a confederate flag and keeps getting like fucking take it down frank like just take it down Yamhill, incidentally, also the city that ends up being where uh, Mr. Kristoff grows up in. <sighs> I uh, I know of a person who lives in Yamhill. Uh, I see him on my partner's uncle's Facebook posts. He's the most right-wing troll. Oh, fun. And I just, just want to punch him in his face. That thing I said earlier about there, there's like some people that agree with you and you don't know it yet. He's not what I mean. Like, your cousin probably is, but not that dude. Not my cousin, my boyfriend's uncle. Oh my god. Oh my god, I'm not related. (laughs) No, but it's funny, because, like, his uncle will post, and when he does, he typically, like, liberal or left-wing triggers, like, so to trigger right-wing people. And so then you'll just see him pop up, and occasionally I'll engage with him. Oh, that's fun. That That keeps the hate flowing. Which is also... Yes. <laughs> yes. Excellent. That was also one of the quiet parts, actually, that I was trying to, to not say as loud. This organ was stolen, and I was made white supremacist, and we've never really, like, reckoned with that. A part of, I think, one of the things that's hard for people to understand what privilege is, but I think it's readily identifiable by, by when you benefit from a complex history, but you don't address it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's particularly in Oregon, that's a thing we're very guilty of. There is a very complex, interesting, very complex, very nuanced history about how white supremacy came about in Oregon. And the fact that we don't, the fact that we don't even acknowledge it means we can't even begin to deal with it. I feel like Oregon, and most especially like the Western states, ended up being like kind of microcosms of like American expansionism as a whole. And I think that, uh, Oregon specifically was like focused very intensely on the white supremacist angle. I think other states like maybe had different focuses. Like I know for Montana, there probably was a huge amount of white supremacy, but it was especially about resource extraction, like gold and other materials. I think we had a, uh, we were definitely a liberal white supremacist stronghold. And I think that was 
that's the thing that's been most curious to me is is understanding that oh liberals actually kind of middle of the spectrum kind of as far left as you can go on the right and realizing what that means and what white supremacy means in that in that system and, yeah daddy was a wild guy and that's also it was also kind of a test run because i'd like to at some point do something like that for the complete history of the united states like go through the the founding of the colonies and express it kind of how they told it what was going on with the native americans and what impacted uh black people and poor people uh throughout the times like i think that would be i wanted to see if i could manage to make a narrative work like that and so that was kind of like my my thing to look forward to from that mm. it also means i i wanted people to consider other places are similarly arranged like um my my stepsisters live in sacramento so i'll use this as an example there's a whole native population that exists in sacramento and then the spanish show up and then the americans show up and the whole time that that's going on spanish people are still there and native people are still there but the history that we're most commonly told is this kind of whitewashed american history it's really just like the last 200 years or so and it ignores these other stories that were going on at the same time history is this weird thing where it's like a 4d image and the more stories you know the more depth you can give to that image yeah it's like when you look at statistics, the more data sets you have, the better idea you have of what the data says. And it, it would be ludicrous to think that that doesn't apply in historic history and other social sciences as well. And I think to go back to that thing you were saying before about how it's kind of boring in class, I think part of the reason it's boring is because if you're if you're meant to just convey this as points of data instead of as stories and as events that impact us that mm -hmm. you're you're more likely to just see it as well boring data which which you know data wise it's like white people showed up at this point constitution was made at this point blah 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 at this point when you hear the more intricate stories it's it's it adds flavor it's a flavor enhancer oh it's like uh the episode where spongebob and patrick learn swear words and they call them sentence enhancers yes i like to sentence enhance history yeah, we you f***ing do. <laughs> we Actually, if you can find a dolphin sound to go over that. Like it. Yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. Because I think that's actually how they did it to censor them. They did sounds like dolphins. Ooh. And like other like sea sounds. It was pretty great. All right. <laughs> Are you ready for the next one? Wait, did we do a, an extra credit about this one? Oh, that other places are like that. that, that uh, you can look to your local area. and. Oh, okay. Um, the history of stand-up is actually the episode that kind of uh, inspired us to start this, because Clown Malarkey, who you can find on Instagram and YouTube, uh, pointed out, I left out a group of people called monologists. Monologists? Mon monologists? Yes, you said it, monologists. And what they were is they existed in that area post-Samuel Clemens, pre-vaudeville uh and what they function as it was like the the you know the monologue that like jay leno would give at the top of the tonight show or whatever like, yeah like the, the or, or how seth myers and and colbert have kind of bits after the commercial break that was more or less what they were doing was they were were telling jokes and stories based on a character but it was they were just delivering prepared monologues and, you and could, it was as puppets no. no, it was at themselves. 
but it was just okay. they, they were literally just just on the they they were the only one there and they would kind of come forward sometimes during these vaudeville things they still existed too they would come forward and they would just deliver like a funny story or a series of jokes or like i used to do something similar in my stand-up act where i'd be like you know i have jokes about missing teeth but those like bite um, I, I have jokes about missing three vertebrae but they don't stand up well i have <laughs> Jokes about being a used car salesman, but I don't get much mileage out of them. And I would. This do- sounds like if Freddie Walker wrote jokes about you. Yeah, but it, Freddie Walker is a is a good example of this, that style of comedy because mm-hmm. he's he's a local comedian for people who don't know him who will tell one liners, but he's telling one liners over the course of a story, and there's other jokes in there, and so, and it's and got- he knows so many fucking one liners, and so it doesn't look the same as modern stand up. Even though it's still stand up, mm-hmm. uh, it's sort of like how crabs have evolved a bunch of different times and ways, or that shape. It, it's a similar thing where, like, if everybody did what Freddie was doing, you wouldn't be able to call it stand up the same way. But that's still stand up, and it comes from that's kind of the most uh, similar thing I can think of to monologists. Is is okay? Is these people like I'm trying to think of a famous example now like anthony jeselnik is kind of close to it if you took out the part where he's he's playing the devil and you know when he goes on stage that everything he says is going to be awful monologists mm-hmm. were similar in that like you know it's going to be a one contained story and solo monologue and it's not necessarily always going to be pe- set up delivery punchline sometimes there's a moral at the end of their whole series of stories it's it's a little bit like a preacher who has a lot of punchlines. Mm. Thank you, Clown Malarkey, for pointing that out. I also didn't clarify that the comedy strike that happened at the comedy store, it succeeded, but it only succeeded for... I, I, I said this, but I wanted to re-clarify that it really only succeeded for the people who were involved. And it set a very basic standard that still exists today, 40 50 years later and hasn't been much updated like it added it gave some autonomy or like power and like bargaining ability to some comedians but it didn't extend it to a lot of other comedians and there has never there hasn't been a push really to expand it since would that be what you would say yeah that was solidified in that kind of comedy club era and the payout structure of of usually the headliner will get a door cut Plus their flat rate is my understanding. And so it varies from individual, but that's also kind of how the model is supposed to be set up to keep people fractured. Is if, if you have a bunch of individual contracts, they don't have to be standardized. Mm-hmm. There, there was also this thing I didn't mention, or, or I think I, I think I like mentioned it in patching, but I didn't touch on it, which was there was well before the minstrel shows, there was a tradition of like revival cultures of these big church events that would go around and would have like kind of a carnival aspect to to them where there was there might be music there might be um maybe some form of dance but not necessarily but there would be a but not sexy dance yeah there would be like community gathering there and it was a strong tradition during the colonial ages that actually kind of unified the identity of the country in a very primitive way uh, but it wasn't really meant to be funny. It just didn't exist the same way. And I also didn't want to imply that comedy didn't exist in America before minstrel shows and, and these these monologists. But 
it didn't exist the way that we would think of stand-up as again it's that kind of thing where like if they're evolutionary branches like there's musical theater troops going through and people doing clown acts and and the storytellers going through and out of this evolves this very specific strain of species called stand-up and that was kind of what i was trying to cover uh through the the story so i didn't want it to seem like before minstrel shows there was nothing people could laugh at but it just wasn't anything we would recognize the same way and I think the the quiet part that I didn't really say out loud um, was that art is labor and it deserves as much support as labor. Um, I think it's important that when we look at like the relationship between labor and capital and and people in the state and all that to recognize the role art plays in that and that it does legitimate work and that when we just blow it off as oh it's just comedy that we ignore some very powerful tools and some very serious facts. <laughs> yeah, actually, um, I saw a very interesting thing. Uh, Sienna Jade, she shared a meme that was like, if you think an artist is undercharging you for their services, pay them what you think they're worth. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, because then they might actually start advocating for being paid more. And I mean, you also don't want to take advantage of people. And I was like, yeah. I'm, that all makes sense. Well, and that that kind of that kind of leads to my second quiet point, which is like exploitation unaddressed is going to run rampant through every stage. I think of the history of comedy, people were exploited in some fashion or another, and it ran rampant because nobody wanted to address it because everyone thought they could benefit from it at some point or another. Yeah, no, I I think about that a lot in. Uh our community as well because it's like the amount of times that i just see that performers are not getting paid the amount of times that i see that uh venues aren't paying out their hosts and performers well either it's just it, it makes me not want to participate at all the thing that's frustrating to me is when you call people out on it they're like oh you're just jealous that you're not getting paid and it's this kind of conversation i have with everything where i'm like no i'm not jealous for me i'm pissed off for all of us like you should well I remember there used to be a part of a lot more of comedy Facebook groups, like, and especially like bigger ones, uh, that aren't just community specific, but are just like comedy specific. And someone, uh, someone was saying something about paying, not paying their performers and things like that. And I was like, any show that I've put on, I've made sure all of my performers have been paid, paid beyond drink tickets. And it was regardless of sales, it was, I agreed upon that price before the show occurred. And they were just, they were just like blown away and like wanted to pick holes in every part of my story or how I did my show to prove that that was outside the norm and that wasn't something to be striven, strove for, striven for. And that, um, it's, it's unrealistic to have that expectation as a performer of your producers and your hosts. And what that always says to me when people say that is either I didn't think of that, so I don't like it, or I think I can take advantage of this exploitive system for my benefit. That's just what I hear when people say that as well. Yeah. <laughs> which is which is kind of kind of a sub sub thing that I didn't say as loud, which is that like systems that only benefit the worst people are only ever going to promote the worst people. So yeah. like if you're only incentivized to kind of fuck over other people, the only people who are going to succeed in it are going to be people who are willing to fuck over other people. And, and that's, I guess, a problem I have with every artistic endeavor under capitalism is, like, if you're striving to make money 
over making art or doing well, then you're never going to do well or make art because you're always going to be focused on money. But that's my... Yeah. Oh, role of art and revolution. Tell me all about it. Well, I think that, I mean, I think that's super important in and of itself is that part of the reason we kind of treat art this way is how revolutionary art is. We talked in the episode about how guys like Gil Scott Heron uh, come from a tradition that's very similar to the one that Lenny Bruce comes from of of kind of spoken word, kind of poetry, kind of trying to fight the powers that be. The role of art in revolution, I think, really can't be understated because a lot of what gets people to think is is something as simple as a joke or as as moving as a painting. I don't I don't have an overly thought out thing, but that was kind of like my my hidden quiet part to say out loud because like well, some of it is a vehicle of revolution, as in changing minds, expanding our concept of what can be, and moving us emotionally to act. But it also can just be a respite from the struggles that we have to revolt against, you know? So it's, it's a, a way it's a, it's like when Gondor calls for aid, but it's also when they take a nappy poo in Lothlorien. There, there's a distinction I try to get people to make when they give advice, which is you, you can have advice that's therapeutic and you can have advice that's meant as therapy and therapeutic advice will make you feel better. But real therapy is sometimes stuff you don't want to hear. And oh, I don't want to do therapy then. Th- art functions very similar. <laughs> sometimes, like you said, it's therapeutic. It makes you feel better. Sometimes it's therapy. It makes you address things. Like I might not like. Uh, I'm not a fan of people like Guar because they. They. I just. I'm just not into gross imagery. I'm just icky. Isn't my. They thing. nasty. Yeah, but I also understand the necessity of being able to be icky in a world that insists on pristineness to continue its own hierarchy. Like. There's a pretty uh, popular gum that you use in gluten-free baking called guar gum, <laughs> but it's G-U-A-R, but at my first bakery job, it was G-W-A-R, and they did it in all caps. Oh, that segues into the third point, like the extra credit, the thing people can take away from that that I hoped. You can look at any industry or any artistic endeavor similarly to the way I looked at comedy or the way I presented comedy, and I guarantee you will find a similar story there. The story that you're told about how it's good isn't always great, I guess. Yeah. And and that it's also possible to have that kind of solidarity across artistic endeavors. Like, I think I think painters could probably organize it, or, or I know for a fact, like, painters like, um, um, like Picasso and some of those uh, uh, later... There's some dudes in the later french uh uh, revolutionary era who all support each other like somebody sells a thing for five thousand gold and they kind of spread a thousand gold among their friends to make sure they survive stories like that occur all throughout history i don't know i just think it's important to highlight those (laughs) was that part of our takeaway or or extra credit yeah i mean supporting local art engaging with art um and it's like and if if you enjoy stand-up Really, and get in, and you're in a community where you can participate in it. Go! It's. I will say this: I w- I have seen offensive jokes that have made me feel shitty, but I've also seen some of the most wild shit ever going to live comedy, and like some of the funniest stories. And it's worth like if you enjoy a thing, go to the thing. Other than where, if you enjoy music, you shouldn't just go to the one big concert. You should be willing to go to a bar show now and again. Same thing with comedy. If you enjoy it, I think it's more important to support the 
the local scene but that's that's yeah that's off in the weeds at that point yeah we're we're tooting our own horns on this one all right are we ready to <laughs> are we ready to continue to toot my own horn with the uh tanya harding knock life oh my god we have so many more left i'll try to go fast some of these aren't aren't as as much as the other one all right, so Tanya Harding knock life. Uh, kind of a thing worth noting with that one was that was the first time we've had a guest kind of bring the story to us because uh, Belinda was the first guest to be like, "Hey, uh, I know you get people to rethink narratives. What about this narrative?" Uh, so uh, thank you again, Belinda, for that. Assuming you listen, <laughs> um, she's off in LA basking in the sun. She's probably got a tan now. Probably, yeah. Um, Lucky bastard. I, I got some of the story around and after the attack wrong. Uh, I got, namely, there was a lot of little itty bitty people, like like people who had a single part in the story that I didn't think mattered, that led to the assault happening, and they all testified kind of against Gugugululi uh, and the person who carried out the assault in some capacity. But I also was like, I don't want to cover like a million. But probably a dozen little people. I just think you're being very sizist right now. <laughs> Not little in that sense, just they were in the story for a second. Because a lot of what happens is, like, uh, the attacker dude or Jeff will go to a bar, and they'll talk to it. They'll talk about what they're planning with someone there. And that uh, okay. person, yeah. Or he'll be in Colorado, and he'll be like, shit, I forgot how to do it. So he'll go to the payphone and call somebody to send him money to do the thing and be like, yeah, I need money so I can go continue my hit. Like, And I didn't. I also didn't cover uh, her subsequent marriages as well. It, di- it just didn't go as well, and I kind of wanted to give the illusion that Tanya Harding has a happy ending. I think she has an okay ending these days, but it was still very, very rough for her even after she kind of left the limelight uh in a lot of ways i think people were unfair to her like i mentioned like she put on that live show in portland and everybody booed her oh and like she had a marriage where like he said she hit him she definitely seemed to have had the crap beat out of her when he said that though i don't i didn't want to get involved in a, a he says she said when it's pretty clear she said more accurately than him hmm but, I mean, she does seem to be kind of settled into kind of obscurity these days, although I guess she does touch up on things. And uh, I really wanted to acknowledge the amount of information I got, again, from the best being from the You're Wrong About podcast, uh, because there's a lot of there, – there was tons of sports podcasts with the story, but they were all very focused on this, like, real cringy, real – fucking bitches be like that kind of angle and you're wrong about podcasts i found out about them after we started like after like maybe end of november and so it was kind of it was it's been kind of curious going through their back catalog and being like oh we're kind of on a similar mission this is cool the quiet part that i didn't say out loud that i thought was really important skill can't beat class in a system like ours like, I, I don't think it can in general, but I think eventually class will trump skill, you know, unless you're wealthy, unless you, you manage to move up through wealth, and Tanya wasn't able to do that. And I think that's one of the myths kind of poor people on the economic spectrum, white trash, tells ourselves is that at some point we'll be undeniable. And I think Tanya Harding was, was literally undeniable in, in a way that you, you 
had to be around to to notice and she still got brought down by like what was not even that serious like it was like it was a bad attack but it wasn't that serious nothing was broken nobody lost their life everyone got caught in the end yeah and like but most of this this punishment was delivered on tanya and that was in spite of her very obvious skill and her very obvious heart like she was a little air quotes rough around the edges but she still seemed to be a pretty decent person yeah she wasn't a turd or anything and it's also uh, again one of the overarching themes of the show is i want people to have kind of a trauma-informed lens of history like be able to look back at the stories in history knowing everyone is a victim of trauma whether they admit it or not and that that's going to impact both how you tell the story and how you hear the story and i think tanya is a very very concise version of that because i think her own trauma forces her to tell the story a certain way which meant the the kind of trauma society inflicts upon itself we were only going to tell it a certain way too well yeah i mean it, it goes back to what you say all the time is that history is written by abusers and abusers shape shape the world around them as part of their abuse and i guess that's just kind of the extra credit is is that feeds into that which is to be be class conscious but be aware that like the victors tell the story and normally the victors are pretty abusive so yeah use that that kind of that lens when you look through history to be like i wonder what these people were going through because like it sounds crazy but sometimes breakfast can influence history you know like you're just having a bad day and you forgot to eat breakfast and so i mean that has nothing to do with this one i'm, I'm starting to get hungry yeah wow <laughs> so if tanya harding would eat breakfast none of this would have happened to her is that what you're saying no i just want that's sna- fucked up Pat. i just want snacks so i'm gonna wait till we're done well you should have brought oreos with you like i did you ready for Holbrook? Yeah, Holbrook, my Stuart Holbrook, my drink. And uh, uh, speaking of Oregon legends that that people don't talk about, his episode is the fastest episode I've put together yet because so much of his life information was collected in this essay or in this book of his writings, and then so much information about him is is kind of very easy to read. That I it, it, the episode came together very quickly. Um, so I was kind of I was kind of proud of that one. Um, things I got wrong, things I got inaccurate. I skipped over the Wobblies a lot, specifically, and and his relationship with unions, uh, specifically because I want to do an episode on unions and the history of unions. And you and I are planning our kind of big union project uh, at some point. An expose, if you will. Yeah, and so so I didn't get too deep into what the Wobblies were or or what was going on with trade unions at the time. So I kind of covered the I, I kind of glossed over the fact that like he wasn't radical exactly himself, but he was willing to tell the stories of radical people, which I think is is an interesting stance and place to be in and was why I wanted to talk about him, but I never really came out and said that, so I felt like it was something I didn't cover accurately. I also didn't cover that he wrote like 20 or 30 books in his lifetime. Like he wrote a lot of books and I didn't want to lay down every title of them, especially because a lot of them aren't in circulation anymore, but he was. So you can't even read them. Yeah. So, so, but he was very prolific and I know, I know I mentioned that, but like throughout all of his life, he's writing for newspapers. He's writing books. He's also, I I didn't realize this, but it was a big thing for people to write letters even up until like the seventies and eighties. So he was writing correspondences with people. 
I didn't get into that as much as I wanted to. Uh, and then an after the fact thing was I went to the Multnomah County Library, and if you go to the very top floor, there is a little display about Stuart Holbrook up there that I didn't mm. know about. And I caught some pictures and put it on the Patreon. If you're like, oh, I'm curious, and you live in Portland, you can go check that out. It's at the top of the downtown county library. So you can get like a little a little recyclables crossover. You can go into the Matthew Paul Deddy uh, library and get to the top and see uh, Stuart Holbrook's uh, <laughs> story, <laughs> which is also kind of the extra credit. I want to I wanna keep an eye out for cool people like this, people who might have been forgotten or who aren't as important, especially if you're a listener. Um, you can reach out to us. Uh, I prefer through the Patreon so that I feel like I'm doing my job. But if you want to... But if you only feel safe talking to me... Yeah. Because but- um, <laughs> let's face it, Patrick is scary. I, I, I guess I am. No, you're not. I'm a paid Facebook informant, so of course... Yeah, I'm apparently... <laughs> <laughs> but if you if you have cool people like this throughout history and there's other people i want to cover like there's um i think it's buffalo sally is is that the name of the person that used to there's a person in montana who was like this black cowboy lady that i want to cover at some point just because she had a cool story anyway there's if you <laughs> my point is the the kind of extra credit that people want to take away from this if there's anyone interesting like that that you guys want us to talk about especially if you're a patron let us know the messages are always open if you want to hit us if up, you're not a patron you can ask too this doesn't have to be a barrier Patrick. yeah that's what i was trying to say is if you don't want to add if you don't want to do it through that uh you can find me on uh twitter at comedian ptp um speaking of ruminations let's let's get to our good friend uh nicholas Kristoff poopy big pooper pants and a little a little kind of production note about Kristoff is we actually released that episode out of order we were going to release the gene roddenberry episode and then uh do the south one episode and then do um pissed off at Kristoff. but the i catching covid messed with that and since we had the episode already recorded, I just decided I don't I don't know if that affected it didn't sound like it affected anything in the episode, but I, I could have missed something because I lived it, you know, Pat's been going through a lot. Yeah, the the, the big things with Kristoff was I found out stuff after the fact. Um, I have been like tangentially paying attention to him for a few months because some of my sex worker friends were like, this guy's bad. Uh, but then I. I read a bunch of articles about him, watched a bunch of interviews with him, read his book, and then read, like, just kind of the, when you, his name popped up, the biggest articles, like, just sped read it, so I didn't really absorb anything. So I missed the part where he endorsed Pinochet, who was uh, a pretty brutal dictator. Uh, Yeah, he's the one that you'll see kind of right-wing trolls wearing shirts that say Pinochet did nothing wrong. So... (laughs) So not reading his articles meant I missed stuff like that. So there's a lot of stuff people pointed out to me after the fact, especially on Twitter, because because Twitter was pretty well on him. And that was that was the other thing I didn't realize was how many other people were already covering Kristoff as far as his shittiness. But nobody in my immediate sphere of friends outside of a handful of sex workers were. So I thought it was kind of important to highlight that. No, it was worth learning how much of a turd bucket he is. That's kind of the quiet part that I didn't want to say out loud is I think a guy like Kristoff is how you could end up with neoliberal fascism. Yeah. Where you're like, it's, it's, we need a country that works. So we're going to focus on making sure everybody works. And 
if you if you're disabled or you're otherwise broken maybe maybe we just put you someplace special where you don't have to work and since you can't contribute you know but we got to make sure everybody's going to work and it just it just reeks of that's how the bad guys could come about in a new way to me i wanted to point that out and and i'm always interested in the argument about being right versus being righteous and i think a lot of uh christoph's takes they're they're not necessarily wrong some of them are right but i don't think he's willing to be kind of like he's not willing to look at them in a, a broader a deeper way than i've been thinking about this a lot lately there's two types of ignorance like there's two types of willful ignorance there's actively not wanting to learn about something because you don't think it's worth it but then there's also this thinking there's nothing else you need to know and i think christoph really sits in that second category where it's like he thinks he he's not interested in educating himself and he doesn't think he needs to or and, and what he's interested in educating himself with is things that don't challenge that confirm his bias yeah and I think it's easy for us to sit here in, in our separate rooms chatting into our microphones and not to check our biases, but we're not the New York Times. We're, yeah. we're not writing for them. We're not running for governor. Where if we were, I also would like to think we would be critical. And if somebody came to me and was like, hey, dude, the stuff you're saying sounds a bit fashy. Like I said, I had a friend who used to tell me my argument sounded very much like Hitler. So it made me look at the things I say and be like, oh, I can I can kind of see where you were getting that. And I apologize. Or, 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 you know what? Uh, Hiller and I were both right about watercolors. <laughs> uh. I don't know where this part goes, but I also kind of noticed he's sort of an antimatter recyclables. Like he's his outlook is sort of the the evil version of how I think of things, and it, it really spoke to me how clear that was. Because I don't think he's necessarily maliciously evil, but I don't think he's a good guy if that makes sense he's <sighs> he's a rich white man who the bar is set so fucking low for and does that it, make sense yeah and when it's set that low it's 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 weird because the bar is set low for him to succeed but for the things he wants to do the bar is higher than he's willing to aim to i think is a uh, at least the conclusion i drew and i i think just the extra credit from this is Especially in this day and age, especially as history is making itself more and more asserted that like, hey, you guys are just living through some history that it's important to pay attention to. Like, I've always been a fan of like, maybe we, the people on the ground, will figure out how to fix the system. But I think as, as, the, as the, the kind of political system above us gets more disruptive, it's, it's very important to pay attention to both the people who are portrayed as the good guys and the people that are portrayed as the bad guys like just in general but especially where politics is concerned yeah i'm a fan of always questioning power if a politician's talking about a niche issue just make sure that what they're saying is being echoed by the people who are affected by that issue you know what i mean we're not seeing this as like we're better than you therefore you need to do what we say I think we kind of approach this as, well, I want to learn these for myself, and I want to share this information. Oh, I'm better than all of you. I mean, I am too, but we're not saying that part out loud. <laughs> yeah, I'm not better than anyone. I'm a mess. Speaking of things that are messy, are you ready to talk about uh, Sorry Libs the South one? Oh, man, I'm ready to get cucked. All right. Um, the biggest thing I got wrong, or, or probably the biggest inaccuracy, was there was a lot of stories uh, I didn't cover because either they're worthy of their own episodes 
or they they have more nuance than I was going to cover in the amount of time I gave myself. I mean, I think you did to an extent, but I think that is one of the things that we failed to really grasp is that when you look at history and especially the people who amass power and the ones who are able to wage war, typically, regardless of whether, what they say they're fighting for, there's a lot of shit they're fighting for that's really fucked up. And there's a lot of things they're doing in the pursuit of those goals that's extremely fucked up. Like, America did a America and the Allied forces did horrendous shit during World War II, yet we're still considered the good guys of uh, that war. Which which speaks to the second point. I don't think I portrayed it like this, but I do think the, the natural bias is to make it sound like the North was the good guys. And I don't think they were the good guys. I think it was a, a war between capitalism that was free labor and capitalism that was based on slavery. And the capitalism that was based on slavery lost. But that meant that we were based on this other kind of capitalism that absorbed some of the tenets of slavery into itself. Both were still interested in exploiting black, brown, indigenous, and women. Like, they both were all about that. It's just like, but how how in the yeah. legal writing is the exploitation going to be? It's like when Rome goes to war between, like, are we going to have a bunch of rich guys in charge or just one rich guy in charge? <laughs> <laughs> I guess I could have gone more into a lot of those little smaller stories. There's a lot of stuff about like American slave rebellions happened a bunch of times and we've we've erased the history of slave rebellions by calling them other things. Part of the reason we don't talk about the the massacres that occurred at the start of the 1900s is because we don't talk about them as massacres. We talk about them as oh there was a riot in that one town. And it's like, well, what what did the riot consist of? Well, a bunch of the white people killed a bunch of the black people. I don't know that that's a riot specifically, guys. Like, I don't know. So that was kind of also the goal, with the, which goes to the saying the quiet part out loud kind of now, bleeding into that. If history is written by the victors, it means you're going to erase a lot of stuff. Yeah. Here's the thing I didn't touch on that's actually kind of important to touch on uh, that I got inaccurate. After the Civil War... A lot of people, a lot of white people are arguing about reparations. And what they mean when they talk about reparations is they want to be paid back the value of the people they used to own. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's magnitudes of messed up. And Haiti gets put in this position post, post-slave uprising. Post Haitian revolution, yeah. Yeah, where the French government is like, we'll keep you safe. But you have to pay us back for the property that you revolution from us. So Haiti's been in, and then America eventually bought that debt. I don't remember when. So Haiti's been put in this position to have to pay off this debt more than they've ever been able to build their own surplus or build any kind of economy. Oh. And the most, a most, a more famous example that like people latch onto of something similar that happened was the Irish potato famine, because the issue wasn't that the Irish didn't have food. The Irish had plenty of food. It got sent to Great Britain, which was also experiencing trouble with famine, and it was denied to the Irish. They were growing tons of crop and sending things elsewhere. They just weren't allowed to keep anything. And that's kind of what's been going on to Haiti for hundreds and hundreds of years. It's tangential, but I think it's very important that those two things relate. I think the 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 reason we let the South infiltrate society the way it did post-civil war is because we were scared of being put in a position such as haiti i think that's also why we kept other countries out of the war but 
getting to the getting to the the quiet part that I didn't say out loud was that like January sixth wasn't a new thing. We've always had political reactionaries who do violent uprisings. And the issue, the reason why January 6th, I think, should worry people is that historically those have succeeded. And that's what that's what puts me on edge. It's like, nah, you do that enough and eventually people will be like, look, we just don't want to deal with it. We'll have peace over over actual peace. Like we'll take we'll take quiet over peace. Growing up in Montana, I I knew about militias from a pretty early age. I didn't know that they were racially motivated most of the time, but I do know that now. And so it's it's really silly that we, as white people, have spent so much time being completely blind to the problem that's been there the whole time. And that's kind of, I guess, kind of like, I'm not sure where this one fits, but like a quiet part I didn't say out loud. It's like, I've always felt this way that like, it's weird that we have so much of the South still around. But I've never had a platform mm-hmm. or a way to say it. Like, it's not a pithy joke I can make on stage. And as we've discussed, I have a hard time sitting down to focus and write. So it's not something I could write out and argue the same way. So it was it was pretty self-indulgent, but it was one of the ones where I'm like, I've wanted to say this for a while. Here's my chance to say it. And I think this kind of bleeds into extra credit is also the kind of quiet part I didn't say out loud. I think most people have some inkling of that. You know, especially if you're like, well, we got rid of slavery. Why did we have Jim Crow then? Like, did there need to be incremental racial segregation or, or racial? We got rid of Jim Crow, but why is redlining? Yeah. And I think I think it's because overall we don't want to examine if the bad guys won. What does that say about us? Like, who are we? Who are you and I? Who are the listeners? Who are our family? Like, if the well, oh, it's I can't remember the comedy sketch, but there's that scene where they look at each other and they're in Nazi uniforms. And are like, we the baddies? Yeah, and I think I, I think that's the main reason we don't have that conversation is if we're the baddies, what what does that mean? So here's an analogous thing that I've been thinking about for years now is like when you learn about the history of the Depression in the 1930s, you you hear about these Hoovervilles. But then they're gone. But in reality, Hoovervilles have never gone away. We have had variations of houseless encampments in major metropolitan areas ever since and are ballooning in size right now. And so if Hoovervilles never went away, then how the fuck has capitalism ever done what it's supposed to do? Yeah, I don't think we've ever had a time in world history where the good guys actually won. Because I think a lot of the time, I hate to quote South Park, but it's a question between a shit sandwich and a douchebag. That's who goes to war. Was Are we going to have Axis authoritarianism or are we going to have white supremacist capitalism? That, that's really what World War II was about. And it's like, well, of the two, I guess white supremacist capitalism is slightly better than you know authoritarian fascism. But like, couldn't we have some socialism or some... I don't know, not people have to die ism <laughs> like, Yeah. And and I think that's hard for people to examine because I think most people, it's, it's a weird disconnect I think we have from the overall system, which is, I think overall, people are good. Like, like on an individual level, we're all right and we want to do good. But the problem is that we have this system that's fucked up and the only way you can, can succeed in that system is to fuck up or to be a, a, a bad person. And so you never get to succeed unless you're awful and you don't want to, like, deal with that dichotomy. So you just say, 
eh, I guess things are fine, or you never question it. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know if that's an answer to that, but... <laughs> Because that does bleed pretty easily into Egg Cab includes Gene Roddenberry. Oh, oh, Gene. Yeah. Genie weenie. Which is uh, another important production note. I know I mentioned it in the the episodes themselves, but we recorded the the first episode with Kyle before uh, I caught COVID and before Rochelle caught COVID. And then we recorded the second one after I had recovered. And before I got COVID. And so, because we we had like a, there there was a solid two weeks where neither of us had COVID. It was really nice. It was we had that sweet spot late late really a week late January. But, yeah. But because of that, it, I'm sure it made some issues in the narrative a little more obvious than usual. Um, but some things that I know notice I got wrong. We can't 100 percent be sure about the nature of the relationship between Roddenberry and Chief Parker. The, the information we have comes from Gene secondhand, and then, like, there's proof that he worked under Parker and for Parker, but I don't know how dynamic or interactive their relationship necessarily was. And since Oh, Gene, man, I was writing my fanfic. Well, no, I mean, I think I think it was pretty, I think they, they interacted quite a bit, because, like, Parker, It's real smutty. Parker, <laughs> it should be. Uh, Parker, Parker used to eat dinner at Gene's house when he was a kid and shit. So I think, and it was fucking filthy. Yeah, it was dirty. Man. <laughs> Ew. So I know they were close. I don't know if they actually, if the shouting matches were an exaggeration of Gene, or if they had a, a more regular working relationship or not. Was it sounded like the Watts riots happened while Roddenberry was still there? The Watts riots happened a decade after Roddenberry leaves. But I think part of the reason they don't happen so soon could be argued that he has this sort of left-leaning speechwriter who can tell him how to do the dog whistles so he doesn't say stupid things like, well, the monkeys in the zoo started rampaging. I'm, I'm sure that's there. Um, and I didn't. I also didn't cover that there was lots of shows Roddenberry worked on kind of between being a police officer and starting Star Trek, but... Star Trek is really where the story is critical. All those other things are just him getting ready, I think, kind of to prepare to pitch Star Trek. And so just it it was less interesting, so I just didn't throw it in there. <laughs> and I left out... Um, he, he had some, some fucked up relationships with people. There was one point with Majel, with his second wife, where he's talking to some people and he's like she would do whatever i want watch hey magil come over here and kiss my feet and she does like in the middle of this party and then walks away and she's like well it was it was less work to do that than to not and Uh. it's like if they if you have a, a consenting dynamic like that that's fine but i don't know how much of that is conditioned abuse and how much of that is that they have kind of a weird kinky relationship But at the same time, like, he did all kinds of cool stuff, too, where, like, he was he was super supportive to the Star Trek fan club and, like, gave them whatever access they wanted. And and he did other cooler stuff, like, when he and Magil eventually marry, they're just kind of visiting in Japan. And they're like, well, we're in Japan, so why have a Christian wedding? Why not have a Japanese wedding? And so they do. Um, and probably the biggest thing, I actually had a friend of mine, one of the people I pet sit for, uh, pointed out. Which dog? Uh, the the tiny adorable one. The oh little, my gosh, yeah. I love him. She was like, you, you talk about all this stuff he does and how busy he is. What are the odds the cocaine use is because he has ADHD and he's just trying to manage it? And like, I can't 
argue against that either. Mm-hmm. You know, sitting, a lot of people might hear he sat on the porch and read books for hours. He can't have had ADHD. And it's like, yeah, that's a, that's a way ADHD works. You hyper fixate on a thing. And because your brain's like, no, we got to do this all right now. So you read a 700 page book because your brain's like, nothing else matters in the moment. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, uh, adds more further nuance to this very complicated, interesting guy. And that kind of goes to the extra credit, which is, I, I, I don't think anyone's perfect, uh, and, and I think it's worth it to examine your heroes critically. I would argue Gene Roddenberry was a younger Patrick Perkins PTP's hero, and knowing him kind of in this deeper way doesn't make him any less heroic in my sense that he can teach me a lot. But I do think a lot of people would hear about this fuller nuance and, and think of it as tarnishing his legacy, and I don't, I don't really agree with that, but... I at least wanted to address it. One <laughs> uh, extra thing is I also, I also there's this thing that goes on among Trekkie nerds where they're like, is Star Trek being true to Gene's vision? And like, I just want you to know what Gene's vision was a little bit, which was Gene's vision was based on how much cocaine he was doing that day and who who he banged. Like, ah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. So that kind of that kind of that's a, that's a, an accounting of our last few episodes. What I'm gonna get wrong next? Some stuff we have planned in the immediate future. I hope to do a episode on how white supremacy has impacted even our view of the dinosaurs. Oh my gosh! Uh, with Black History Month coming up, I want to celebrate one of the true superheroes of history, uh, Harriet Tubman. And then I want to do an episode about this really interesting lady I found out about, Claudia Jones. And then for a while, you and I are going to do something a little bit uh, different. We're gonna we're gonna watch through Steven Universe and give kind of our our takes on it. Give our our do a watch along. But the reason we're gonna do that is because uh, I wanna I wanna take some time to research some deeper ideas. Uh, we want to do a few more miniseries, kind of cost of convenience style. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've had a. A listener suggestion about a book that talks about the relationship between uh, the witch trials and capitalism. Caliban and the witch, yeah. Cause, yeah, because I guess a lot of uh, I guess a lot of women's powers was tied up in the accounting of the household uh, in the early earlier decades of life, and I'm very curious to find out the truth of that and and find out. So so we've got a lot of stuff we want to do, and it's a little bit hard to research an episode do an episode and and edit them all at once but if i'm doing an episode while i'm researching other episodes and editing it should be a little less work but we still want to produce something kind of kind of to keep our listeners engaged and produce content and all that crap more content okay so one one thing i do want to plug is that i don't want to brag too hard folks but i'm almost at 300 followers on tiktok um, my username is at underscore R-O-C-O-C-O-T-E. I've been enjoying doing a piece of neurographic artwork and I think about um, a specific topic and then I time-lapse record it and I share them on uh it's on TikTok, Instagram, and they're in my Facebook stories as well. But it's just sharing the art process and what I'm thinking about while I'm doing it. And it's, it's a form of art therapy. So if you're interested, check it out. And what I'd really like is to be able to do them live on, like, TikTok so that people could, like, draw along with me, stuff like that. But you need a 1,000 followers on TikTok to be able to go live. So it's not like I'm farming for followers here. But 
No, if you're if you, I, I think if you appreciate the show, we would both appreciate it if you yeah. check us out on social media, give us a follow, and and tell other people about the show. That's that's a thing. I I can't stress how much I I don't really care that like. I, I live ramen noodles to ramen noodle. Well, okay, I live I, li- I live can of chili to packet of potatoes to can of soup to oh I can afford steak this week. Like, Hell yeah! Like, like, but I don't mind that as long as people are enjoying what we do. Mm-hmm. And part of the way people will find out about that is if you share. So thank you when you can and do share. A lot of what it comes down to is that if you can't support financially, that's totally fine. But Take a little bit of time out of your day to, you know, share a link to ours or um, follow us on our other facets of social media and engage with our content so it can reach farther. Because you gotta, we got to get the algorithm on our side. And to do that, we need more people involved. I don't know how to make bots, and I don't want to put Patrick through that. They're like, the moral conundrum of bots is a little bit too much for him. Yeah, I don't want I, I to fake it till I make it when I can just make it. Like, I'd rather have, you know, our two dozen really strong supporting listeners than a thousand fake listeners so thank you to the two dozen or so we should get a list at some point the the person in massachusetts all my stepsisters everyone from facebook and um pearl. yeah yeah oh pearl do, do we know that pearl's still listening i'm never gonna ask because i don't want to find out otherwise yeah i'll be sad we really want to make it big with the teenager demographic, which tells you a lot about our goals. Oh, gosh. I... We just want teenagers to think we're cool, damn it. <laughs> it's hard because, like, I don't think there's ever been a time in my life where I've been marketable towards teens, um, even when I was a teen. So it's... getting a little sweaty thinking about it already. It's the most awkward part about being a, a parent. Is that there, especially of a teenager, is there is a part of me that's like, well, I want this teenager to think I'm cool. And then I'm like, oh, wait, I own this teenager. Like, <laughs> I've, sh- I've shared rights. <laughs> uh, so before we go one more time, what was your what was your Patreon? Or, or oh, you're, so you're, you're going to make a Patreon. But yeah, but my TikTok? TikTok is at underscore R-O-C-O-C-O-T-E. It's Roco Cody. Um, cause I'm fresh and hip. Um, it's, they're also available on my Instagram as well, but the follow on TikTok would be helpful because I'm getting a lot more engagement through TikTok on my content. And I think it's a place where I can do a little bit more. And Instagram makes me feel bad about myself a lot. That's fair. And it's for the thing that makes you feel bad. It's whore for poor. Yeah. Yeah. My art Instagram is at whore for poor. I'm comedian PTP on Instagram. Patrick Thomas Perkins on Facebook, comedian PTP on Twitter, and you can you can follow the show all the time at patreon.com forward slash recyclables. Yeah. Bye. Bye everyone, Bye. we love you. Thank you for picking up recyclables today. Donations to the ACAST streaming service are of course always welcomed, but the best way to support the show is by going to Patreon dot com forward slash recyclables and becoming a patron today if you can't do that another great way is by liking subscribing sharing rating and reviewing the podcast on whatever podcast listening service you use all right thanks